Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, an irregular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter, a weekly email that covers the most important shifts in marketing technology. People who work in the world's largest tech, media, and advertising companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay. Today, I'm joined by David Raab. He's the founder of the Customer Data Platform Institute. It's a vendor neutral platform that supports the MarTech industry with methods, issues, education, and best practice guides around using and managing customer data. So David has been consulting in this space for many, many years. He even coined the term CDP way back in 2013. We talk about one of David's recent articles, Have We Reached Peak MarTech, which was featured in TMW 30. So you can go back and read it there. But today we explore the state of the marketing technology industry, whether or not it's hit a peak moment yet, and what the outlook is on the future of MarTech. So I give you David. Hey, David, how are you? I'm doing well, Juan. How are you? I'm doing great. So let's uh, start with a brief introduction to uh, what you do. Uh, you've been working in this industry for many, many years. Uh, I'd love for you to tell me a bit about your work throughout the evolution of marketing technology. What did it look like when you started out? And what have been some of the biggest changes in the industry recently? Well, Juan, I started out an awfully long time ago. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we did have electricity, uh, although I, wor I worked with people who talked about running magazine, like Time Inc. magazines on uh, punch cards. So that I, I was a little before my time, but not that much before my time. So I really have seen marketing technology evolve from its, its earliest days in the 60s and 70s when we first began to actually put these things on computers. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's changed quite a bit, but you know the problems never change. <laughs> customers are customers, data is data, marketers are marketers. <laughs> so the, the fundamental issues are, are still all pretty much the same. It's just the technology keeps getting smarter and faster and more complicated. Mm. And what do you think in terms of the, the industry evolving, you know, like you say that customers are customers, there's the problems are all still there. It's probably more enhanced by the technology more than anything else. Um, we, we're talking about this idea of Pigmatech. So whether or not um, the industry is sort of hit, hit this peak moment where, you know, it's kind of all downhill from here. And in your article, you unpack a, a number of different ideas, but I want to just throw a few statistics uh, over your way on, I guess the state of the MarTech industry uh, over 2020, $121 billion was spent by companies on marketing tech. So that was according to a, uh, an Airtable piece of research. And over time, marketers have adopted more tools. There's more software that, that they've been have, having to use. So on average now, there's an estimate of about 20 plus tech tools that marketers are using. So that's a lot of different products to manage. But also in 2020, uh, Scott Brinker's, you know, famous MarTech super graphic, he said that he added 13% more logos, so 13% more companies, and he's up to 8,000 solutions in that mega graphic. And then if you take a zoomed out view and look at the past decade, more than $50 billion has been invested into venture capital. So that's a lot of funds going into the industry. And so what do you think around the whether or not we hit peak MarTech, it seems that everything is growing and growing exponentially so from a monetary, the, so the, the finance that goes into the industry, but also, uh, I guess, how companies are using it and how many tech products are being used by marketers these days. Um, you, you say in your article that 
so the pendulum has shifted or is about to reverse direction at some point. So why do you think that is? And, and tell me a bit about that. Well, not having been born yesterday, I was very careful in the article to not actually say when I expect peak Martech to happen. I just sort of said it's coming. So, <laughs> so, so you know, yeah, yeah. I can't be proven wrong. I did not give a date for the world to end. Yeah. Uh, but things cannot continue forever growing. Sooner or later, there has to be a reversal. So that's uh, you know something of a truism. So on, on that level, how can I be wrong, right? Sooner mm -hmm. or later, things will change. But, but the, the, the thrust of it was we are probably approaching, maybe not today, not tomorrow, maybe not even next year, mm -hmm. but <clears throat> the, the point at which there simply will be more complexity than we can manage. And I always think of Jurassic Park when the system gets so complicated that, you know, eventually it collapsed into chaos. <laughs> and at, at the, I'm... <laughs> As you can see, I'm somewhat of a pessimist. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, we don't get chased by velociraptors. Right, yeah. right. Um, <laughs> in some ways, we already are metaphorically. I think being chased by velociraptors, but be that as it may, uh, the the real thrust of it is that you know you can't just keep laying on more and more systems and subdividing and subdividing because there's a limited amount of attention that people can give. And there's a little limited amount of sort of control mentally that people can, can manage. They can only kind of imagine so many variables. At some point, it becomes, the system becomes more than they can manage. And, and, and we, we have to find, I think at that point, we will, in fact, say, you know what, I, I, it's, it's just too much. Let me simplify this. And that's when the pendulum will start to swing back when we say, you know, Yes, there are you know dozens, actually hundreds of different ways I can go out and meet my customers, and I simply can't optimize them, and I don't trust the computers to optimize them because that's the solution that is generally proposed right now. So, well, let the AI manage it. Yeah, it's way more than any human being can really kind of conceive of coherently, but we'll just let the AI do it. We'll trust the AI. And I think that we are kind of reaching a point now where we're not necessarily as willing to trust the AIs as we were, say, five or 10 years ago. And you can look at people, uh, you know, complaining about Facebook. We always love to beat up on Facebook. And, and no matter how much we beat up on them, they deserve it even more. So believe me, I do not feel guilty about beating up on Facebook. But, you know, there, there, there's that algorithm there. And actually with Facebook, you know, the algorithm is, is actually pretty well controlled by humans. So in some ways, it's a poor example, but it's opaque to the rest mm. of us. Yes. You know, it does exactly what Facebook wants it to do, but we don't know what, what Facebook is really tuning it for, except every now and then you'll see something in, in a court case that'll come out and you find out what they were really up to. Um, but from us, it's, 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 we just don't know. And, and programmatic advertising, the bids are going out there. The systems are theoretically optimizing the stuff. We have no idea. All we know is all of a sudden my ad ends up next to something that I would never want my ad to show up next to be for, you know, for whatever reason, because it's a bad piece of content. And so you put another layer of control over that. And then you put another layer of control over that layer, another layer of control over that. So again, sooner or later, we're going to say, you know, I'm just not getting what I wanted. Plus, every one of those layers, particularly in the ad tech world, is costing me money. And there's been interesting studies about how much of the advertising dollar actually flows through to the publisher, and it's well well under half at this point. The yep. rest of it's all going to these intermediate layers. So people are going to say, you know, let, let me just do contextual advertising. If I want to reach sports people, let me just go to a sports website and the heck with this other nonsense. And the privacy stuff is pushing us in that direction. So there are a number 
of, of different factors that are all pushing us to do away with some of the more elaborate kinds of ways of doing things and coming back to simplicity. And you know, I think that's going to happen. They'll, they'll all come together. And they, the thing about these kinds of phase changes is they do happen quickly. You don't, almost don't right. see them coming. And then all of a sudden, almost overnight, you suddenly things switch. And I'm beginning to think that maybe we are actually getting closer and closer to that. Uh, it, it's, you know, again, I can't really point to the data, but it just, just feels like things are changing. It sounds like there's there's um, been a convergence of a few different themes in the industry over time. So artificial intelligence becoming more prominent and used more sort of widespread by companies. So, you know, most tech platforms, even CDPs will offer some sort of machine learning solution these days. That wasn't the case five to 10 years ago um, in a, for a lot of the sort of package software you see on the market. But then you have this other aspect of, uh, and you mentioned this sort of opaque ad tech industry where there's a lot of layers, there's a lot of middlemen in between and the money you put into, the, into those platforms, you, you don't necessarily know how those decisions are made because of how those algorithms are uh, sort of formulated. Um, but I'd like to pick out one of the quotes from uh, your article uh, that talks about this state. And I think it captures sort of the spirit of where things are at in marketing technology quite well. So you say that uh, my prediction is based less on MarTech trends than a general impression that many people feel the world is spinning out of control and want to rein it in. Tech in particular is having impacts that no one really understands. Concerns about disinformation, social media-induced radicalization, lost privacy, and biased artificial intelligence are all part of this. Even in the narrow spheres of MarTech and AdTech, many users feel their systems are too complicated to really understand. Worries about ad fraud, ads appearing excuse me, in the wrong places, inappropriate personalization, unintended campaign messages all come down to the same thing. People worry their systems are making unseen and bad decisions. So, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting because the MarTech industry has ballooned into this massive, massive thing now. Um, you know, it, it, it's uh, so many different solutions out there across so many different verticals and industries. And when you have a huge industry uh, with a lot of different players, uh, you know, the interesting thing about MarTech is that the complexity of the offerings are increasing as well. So what do you think leaders should be thinking about uh, when it comes to that technology complexity, you know, the indecipherability of things like AI, uh, you know, the opaqueness of how some platforms may use data? What should tech leaders be sort of thinking about in that space? Well, I think they should be thinking about how they're going to protect themselves from unintended consequences because that's the concern here right is that the system is just going to make a decision that makes perfect sense logically but that as a human being and or perhaps even as an ethical responsible human being you would say you know no it's not really something we want to do so um, you know advertising in, in ways that, that are uh, disadvantaging, you know, particular groups that, that shouldn't be disadvantaged. And, and we've seen this, you know, for decades, it's nothing new, redlining. Even back when I was building predictive models uh, many, many decades ago, um, you know, you always had to make sure that you weren't 
accidentally using a variable that was a proxy for race or for income mm -hmm. or for gender or something that you weren't allowed to do. And it wasn't that you were consciously trying to do that. It was just that's kind of those things correlated in ways that uh, you didn't really want to let them correlate. You didn't want to make use of that correlation. So now we talk about bias in AI. Well, it's exactly the same thing. It's the AI is not biased. The data sets are biased. <laughs> Uh, you know, but our data sets are biased, frankly, because the world is not a fair place, and and the world, you know, the world does have discrimination and things like that. It's it's not it's not just discrimination we're talking about, but those are the kinds of things, uh, you know, making decisions that are going to be bad for the environment. It's another one, right? You know, it's yeah. you have a lot of short-sighted kind of logical, rational decisions that don't take into account externalities, like say the cost of pollution and so on. Yeah. That you know you might want to, but your system doesn't know you want to unless you tell it and you can't control it. And even if you tell it to, it'll it'll almost find a way to work around that if it's trying to optimize just for profits. So mm -hmm. we have to have ways to pull back and really make sure we understand what the system is doing, looking at the outputs. And that gets back to that whole complexity issue because we know that the system is making more decisions than we can check on entirely. We can't check on every decision. Otherwise, we'd be making them in the first place. We rely on our systems to make more decisions than we can look at. So we have to find ways to have the decisions that we don't want it to make kind of bubble up to the surface. So we can say, oh, wait a minute, you know, check for this, check for that, check for some outcome that I want to really make sure isn't happening. And that's a hard thing to do. And it's yet another layer of, layer of complexity, of course. Mm -hmm. So I, again, I think at some point people say, you know, it's, it's just too much. Let's just, let's just simplify the stuff and go mm -hmm. back to a few rules and, and put the AI kind of back in its little box where it belongs. One thing about AI is there's been a lot of research recently that suggests that AI is nowhere near as widely and successfully adopted as we kind of have been led to believe there, mm. you know, there are lots of studies about companies that have yes deployed AI, but only in little bits and pieces here and there, and the returns aren't necessarily as great as they think. So, uh, the assumption of a prior success, it's already happens too late, you know, the, the you know, genie's out of the bottle, um, is, is not necessarily true. We're at an interesting tipping point with AI where, you know, you do have those media stories of, uh, you know, bias systems that making decisions. You know, I, I read a really great quote the other day from the CEO of NVIDIA. I'm talking about GPUs and gaming. And he said that artificial intelligence is automating automation. So we can create sort of dumb models of programs that will automate a lot of the decisions that a person may need to make. AI automates that decision-making process. And so, uh, you know, that lack of control and, and literally handing that over to an AI system while also thinking about, okay, what are the biases in the data sets into the considerations that are factored into those platforms it seems to me that um, people don't want to give that control away, <laughs> even though a lot of the capabilities are there to do that. Uh, that there's this sort of reaction that, oh, if, if we do this, then, um, then you know, we, we actually lose a lot of the ability to um, control our brand. And so, you know, a lot of the solutions to technology problems is more technology. <laughs> and it's a bit of a motif that, okay, you know, we've got this problem with, for example, content moderation. So Facebook builds an AI to sort of take up more capacity on content moderation. So more technology, or, you know, there's always an app to solve a problem that existing technology, like, you know, it's like one layer on top of a layer, like a city built on top of a city on top of a city. And there's so many different layers to it and solving problems that technology introduces.
And so why, why do you think that more technology is the answer? Like what's the, what's the alternative here? Do we go back to print advertising? Do we switch off Google ads? Like what, what is that sort of um, that answer to the complexity of technology? Well, I think we do to some extent decide some things are, ungovernable and we and we just choose not to use that particular technology i think that's a decision that actually more and more people are making even in their personal lives they're saying you know i'm going to spend less time on social i'm, I'm going to maybe you know cook my own meals and, and not just you know eat out as much and of course the pandemic has changed a lot of things like that but i think there is a again there's just this, such a feeling of loss of control that people will in both ways, large and small, try to regain at least some control. And some of that is going to be saying no to technology. And it's just kind of, you know, they have the whole maker movement where people want to, you know, bake their own bread and build their own houses. And God only knows what they want to do. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not sure I want to live in the house that, that I built because, <laughs> you know, the roof would most likely leak and the plumbing wouldn't work. But, um, you know, maybe I'll sit on a chair I made or something. So, you know, there are people who just want to do things and, and, you know, there's, you know, again, those sort of sustainability and building things to last, not just throw away a lot of stuff that we've been talking about for decades or certain people have been talking about for decades that I think is getting a much more receptive, broader audience. Now as people say, you know, really, we, 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 we simply are doing too much. We're consuming too many resources where we, we, we can certainly have equally as fulfilling lives without, you know, five different mobile devices to carry around or however many we have. Um, you know, we don't really have to sleep with our phone next to us in bed just mm. in case somebody wants to send us a text message. So there are lots of ways I think that people are kind of pulling back a little to simplify their lives and it carries over into, into the business world as well. Yeah, and and a few ways that uh, that plays out, particularly around advertising, is uh, you meant you touched on it earlier, contextual advertising. So, you know, looking at sort of broad audiences, or this publication is for sports people and target sports people more generally without having to do that really targeted advertising, a complex programmatic, you know, sort of taking that broader view. I was reading a great article this morning about um, newsletter advertising and how, you know, sort of algorithmic social media has been a bad deal for a lot of creators, people who write articles and put out content or videos or, and one aspect of this is the sort of rather sub stack and other platforms like it, you probably say only fans as well, where, creators saying, well, hey, you know, I'm putting my content out onto social media, algorithm decides who sees it. Why don't I decide who sees it by building my own email lists or building my own um, customer and using technology to empower that. And so there's this whole creator economy aspect, which is emerging, but how that feeds into sort of that simplification of uh, advertising or marketing strategy is that a lot of companies are seeing those, like those audiences, those sort of you know, first party data audiences as really valuable, even though you can't do really specific targeting or personal personalization in something like a newsletter from an individual creator. It's a very small captive uh, audience or that can be quite large as well that are grouped around specific niches and topics. And so that's that, you know, the creators are kind of taking the power back from, you know, the algorithmic social feeds and actually trying to put value directly into the market and it can, can, can consumers directly. And so I think that's one aspect there, one trend that's, that I'm seeing where it's going sort of stripping away some of that complexity, uh, and so when we're talking about, and I want to sort of touch on a more of a technical question here about technology platforms, you've been assessing them for many years 
and the CDP Institute has a verified CDP badge that a tech platform can go and they go through a process and get um, get verified which is really great. It sort of clears up a lot of the confusion history of what a CDP is. With this whole topic of AI and misinformation and data use and privacy and all of these things, how's your approach to sort of verifying platforms changed over the past few years? Has it changed at all? Uh, and what does it kind of look like to assess technology in your space right now? Well, I think we may have gotten a bit more skeptical. I've always been fairly skeptical uh, when it when it comes to what vendors, uh, you know, claim versus what they can do, you you, you simply have to insist that they show you. Uh, that's just you know that again, that's human nature. That's that's never that's not going to change. Uh, it, it gets harder because the technology is more complicated, so it's you know harder to look at it. When back in the day, even you know ten years ago, when you would look at a campaign management software, when what we now call marketing automation system or a journey builder, you know you would see you would see a set of rules and you would be able to follow the flow because it was like a you know a big set of if, if then statements or the graphic equivalent like a flow chart. Mm. You know now it's like oh the AI is going to pick the right message for the right person. Mm. And well that's kind of that's not something I can see on the screen, right? So so you're forced to do more testing. You're forced to run scenarios and say, okay, look, I'm gonna give you some data. I know what I think the answer should be. Let me see what your system come up, comes up with and if it sends out the messages that I think are the right messages. So it's more of a black box because I can't really see the operation, but so I have to be more careful about controlling what the inputs are and what the outputs are for a given set of inputs because that's the one thing that I can know if, if it's working right or not, as if it's giving me the right outputs. So that's a bit of a change. It, it makes it harder in many ways because you have to really kind of focus on what the system is doing, not how it's doing it. In some ways, it's easier to look at how a system does something. Technologists explain to you, you see what the rules are, if you know what you're doing. You say, well, you know, if you're using this technique, then this is what's going to be the issues because mm -hmm. I understand these techniques. If it's just oh, the AI is just magical. Well, I don't know how I test the proposition that the AI is magical. Mm. And and uh, there's a oh, there was a really great topic, a book that just came out recently from uh, from the CEO of Twilio called uh, "Ask Your Developer." And the whole, the whole theme around that book is about uh, why don't you ask your developers in your company to be part of the sales pitches <laughs> from some of these technology vendors, because they're the people who will be able to understand the technology in a way that most other stakeholders may not. Uh, they'll be able to ask the hard questions, uh, particularly around the things that you just mentioned around how how governable is the this machine learning um, algorithm, you know, what are the rules, what are the factorizations that sit in with that with that um, technology, uh, but also be able to think about how it's applied within the organization and, and more broadly, uh, things like, um, you know, privacy and trust and and ensuring that the data quality is, you know, is, is actually fit for purpose and usable. Uh, so that is a great sort of topic there around bringing in some of your developers to be part of some of these conversations when you're buying or purchasing technology, especially the more complex types of technology as well. You have this idea in the article called the new pragmatism. Now, I'd love for you to unpack that around how, which companies are really differentiating themselves uh, in that sort of realm of privacy and trust. Well, I think, the, you know, the ones who've 
really almost reoriented our entire business around, of course, are Apple, right? I mean, they're like, oh, yeah. we are the privacy company. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, they do it because they have a business model that's not advertising-based, so they, they can get away with it in a way that, you know, Google or a, or a Facebook simply cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've done a pretty good job. I think you know, the IDFA is, is may even, even be going away today. I don't know, sometime very soon, they're going to, like, flip the switch mm-hmm. on their policies that make it way harder to track people. And marketers have been, you know, kind of running around like headless chickens. Oh my God, what's going to happen? The sky's going to fall. They won't be able to track people. And, and my, my answer to that is like, you know, for thousands of years we had advertising, and we didn't have mobile device IDs. Somehow we managed to do advertising. People managed to buy things. So chances are that you know the ad industry will survive. And I think the privacy. Um, the privacy movement, or whatever you want to call it, is really been underestimated in terms mm. of the impact it's going to have on the industry. And it's it's gotten a lot of attention, and people are worried about uh, IDFA and third-party cookies and GDPR and a bajillion other rules. And I know there's some new rules in Australia. I've had this very interesting ruling in Australia recently uh, mm. along those lines. The, and, but we're just beginning to see how those changes are ramified through and again it's gonna force people to kind of rethink their assumptions about how much data they really need and how much personal tracking they really need to do to be effective marketers. And some of it is get just kind of going back to the things we did before we had those as options. We've gotten a little lazy perhaps mm. and saying, oh, we're just gonna track individuals. And you, you talked a little bit earlier about branding. And you know, if everybody gets a different message, then what the heck is my brand about? Right. Yeah. The whole point of a brand is to have a consistent message that maybe you tweak a little here and there, but basically you, you want people mm. to understand what you stand for. Well, if everything is tactical mm. and the AIs are very tactical, all these optimization things, they just chase a near term, mm. in most cases, a, a near term goal, because that's the thing they can measure and uh, you know, see how things are going against. So you can't. So they, they tend to push you in those very tactical directions. Mm. Um, so, you know, Apple, and then there's a whole slew of companies that are building themselves, like you know, Brave and people like that. DuckDuckGo, mm-hmm. you know, specifically browser-based te- or uh, privacy-based technologies. And there's more and more of a kind of an alternate universe of tools out there that I can buy that focus on those things. And it's a minority of the public that really cares. Most surveys will show you, oh, you know, 20, 30% of people are kind of what we call like, you know, really privacy first. Mm. And oh, I'll never share my data. You know, I just, or at least if I have a choice, I'll never share my data. Mm. Um, and there's another third of the people who really don't care. Another third of people who are a little more selective about what they do. So it's not that everybody's going to make that switch, but I think there is a good sized market for people who really do want to take back some of that control. Um, and there's going to be more and more companies who are meeting that market. You know, why should I need to, like Google track my location just because I want to use a map. Mm. You know, I really, <laughs> there's other ways to do this that don't require yep. that. And, and the privacy regulators are really forcing us to think about that. The, the rules that make me responsible for the data that I buy make, make it such that I have to know the data is pre- procured 
legally and properly, which didn't used to be rules, but now there are rules. Now I have to be really careful about who my providers are that I'm using. So that that really should clear away a lot of the shadier business people out there doing that. And there's a lot of shady third-party data floating around. So the, the stuff, the ramifications are just beginning. It's going to take a while to play out, but I think it's actually going to be a bigger change than we realize. And we already realize it's a fairly big change, but there's a lot more going on here than just, oh, programmatic advertising is going to get harder. That's kind of the least of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's almost like the uh, the days of the World Wide West are over uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the past 10 years in particular, it has been a bit of a free-for-all, right? Like tracking as much as possible about consumers, you know, not a lot of regulation around the, the way that companies use data and collect it all the way from the individual shop retail store that's selling t-shirts and shoes to all the way through to big tech and social media and, and, uh, and all the product companies sit that sit in between. So uh, what, what I find really fascinating is this, this idea that, that privacy is becoming a really strong brand proposition so you meant you touched on apple and they're like the trust of the privacy company like we won't share your data you know we everything is sort of secure on devices and things like that and they've been able to differentiate themselves against google's you know smartphone maker um, and other brands because uh you know that real focus that media focus on trust and, and privacy uh in this new age and I, I think you're right that we're sort of seeing the early starts of this where your know, programmatic advertising is going to have more problems it's become going to become a shrinking market i think in a lot of ways but it's really just a start you know it's a bit of a snowball effect i think privacy you know and i'd be interested to get your thoughts david on this and that you know uh, are you familiar with uh, b corp uh, what that is mm-hmm. yeah so like well, could we see the day in the next decade or so where we have a B Corp for data, you know, so companies that sign up and they're verified and, you know, we, we are verified as a company who respect and, um, and uh, protect the customer data that we collect and we use it in ethical ways. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's a lot going on in, in the privacy world that is um, uh, not widely covered outside of the privacy world. I, I'm on a couple of mailing lists and stuff. And, and these are people who've been really focusing on this stuff for years and years, decades in some cases, and they have very elaborate schemes afoot about self-sovereign identity is sort of the key term involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are companies like ID.me, for example, that I think may even be a B Corp. There are several B Corps already that are in, in the area that are designed to be sort of the agent for the for the individual who who manages and controls their data on their behalf. So instead of letting Facebook and Google and all those guys collect my data and use it for their purposes, put me as the individual in control of my data and let me decide who else I'm going to grant access to my data and how I'm going to let them use it and have some organization that is 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 powerful enough and has the technology and the skills to actually do a good job of that. I think one of the things that's interesting, again, is the sea change is until fairly recently, we've had this attitude, oh, they're all the same. Every, yeah. You know, everybody's going to do stuff with my data. I can't, I just, I, I, it's beyond my control. Cat's out of the bag. Nothing I can do about it here. So, and then you have, again, coming back to an Apple who says, no, no, there really is a difference. You know, we really are doing a better job protecting your data than Google Android is. So don't just assume we're all the same because we're not. And once people even get the notion 
that there actually are differences, then they will begin to look for those differences. Mm. And, and, and maybe if they have the patience, and again, this is where you come to at least that third of the market who cares about these things, to actually do an assessment of say, you know, yeah, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm still not going to read a privacy policy because who's they're, they're too long. They don't play, <laughs> you know, and, and there was some survey I recently, like, like 30% of the people claim they read privacy policies or it's like, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but yep. I, but people will, if a company finds that it's to their advantage to really be very clear about privacy, again, thinking back to people like DuckDuckGo and Brave and so on, mm. um, ProtonMail, um, then they will actually make that stuff comprehensible and be really clear about what they don't do and don't do. And then that kind of raises the bar and forces people to at least lets people see they have a choice. Mm. And once they begin to see they have a choice and they begin to realize this is something that I care about, mm. then things can shift quite rapidly, as I say. Yeah, there's a, there's such a fascinating um, motif here around data and, and privacy. And uh, I wrote something a few weeks ago for the newsletter about this topic to say that, you know, that for around data is data is a new oil, you know, or data is a new sand, you know, basically saying it's a, it's a resource. It's really valuable. Uh, it's a commodity resource that companies can use to create value. But there's this, this interesting topic idea that data is actually probably more like nuclear waste <laughs> or toxic waste. And the concept is really to say, well, uh, you know, why do nuclear power plants, you know, even though the technology now is, is so advanced and so safe that it hasn't had global widespread adoption. Well, why is that? Well, Chernobyl happened. Um, you know, the fact that a lot of toxic waste lasts thousands and thousands and thousands of years and the harm of that can potentially impact generations that we don't even know about. So the, the capacity for people to actually manage that, that resources um, is actually very, very risky. And so you got these factors and it's spooked a lot of consumers to say, we don't want nuclear power. It's unsafe. We, we can't control it in a way that's longstanding. Um, and data is kind of the same way. So if I am using Facebook or Instagram now, or if I buy something from an e-commerce store, they're collecting data, they might put it into a, you know, a Redshift, Amazon Redshift or some sort of cold storage. And that data can persist for however long. It can persist for hundreds of years. And uh, the whole idea is that do you want data collected on you on the things that you bought or, you, or your behavior online um, to be dredged up 100 years from now to, for your next generation, you know? And <laughs> I just find that such an interesting, fascinating concept that, um, and I think you touched on this earlier, that we do have such a short-sightedness when it comes to data collection, that the ethics around it is so, um, so mature, I think, in terms of how, how consumers think about it, how companies think about it, because a lot of data is t tied to commercial outcomes and, you know, sort of revenue and, and you know, forecasting what kind of value you can get out of your data. But there's this ethical layer that I think brands can really do themselves a great service on starting to probe into that and start putting that as a layer in their consideration sets as well. Um, so I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts or sort of ideas around that. Do you know, do you agree that data is more like toxic waste or sort of how would you, how would you frame it? <laughs> well, I, the good news is it has a much shorter half-life, right? A like hundred years from now, really no one is going to care anything mm. about what I did, no matter how, uh, horrible it may have been at the time. Um, but I think that we can't rely on companies to be moral and ethical. I, we can, to a minor degree, rely on individuals to be moral and ethical. But the notion that 
uh, at least in a capitalist system, the companies are suddenly going to be willing to turn down a lot of opportunities just for the pure joy of being, you know, good beings. Um, mm. Probably is not really uh, the the nail you want to hang your hat on there. Mm. Uh, but I, I think that we can look to rules. We can look to laws that say, you know, mm. you're just not allowed to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And and, I, and that's. Um, a lot of people are a little leery of that, a lot because a lot of people in the privacy world, in particular, we're focusing on privacy here, are kind of libertarian. Just they're very anti-authoritarian. Just, just, just kind of who they are, and that's, I guess, to some degree, who gets attracted to privacy. Um, and so they're very skeptical of the government. So they they tend to poo-poo regulatory solutions. <laughs> uh, but it, it's it's you know that's one of the one of the legs of the stool. It has to be. Is there simply you know you could you could shut down half of these guys overnight by just saying you're not allowed to collect this data. Period. It's against the law. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of what GDPR. And but GDPR is like well if you get consent if you have a purpose blah blah blah. But you know you could have some pretty simple rules that would really fundamentally change how all this stuff works and, if, and rules that to be perfectly honest wouldn't do a lot of damage. You know it's not like, oh the internet's going to collapse. It's, you know <laughs> Facebook saying oh small businesses will die if the IDFA goes away. Well mm. small businesses won't die. Well, <laughs> Not not how that's going to work, yeah. you know. Facebook may be in trouble. And one of the really interesting things, and again, this is all related to the fact that people are paying more attention. There's been some interesting studies, and I think it was uh, some studies that, that were done by the, the British government um, about how much data that Facebook and Google collect is actually collected offsite. It's not what I do on Facebook, and it's not what mm-hmm. I even do with Google. It's where they have all their tags and all the other sites. And the number that I'm remembering is like 80% of the data that these guys collect actually comes from people on not on sites that are not their own sites. So again, if you just say, you know what, you're not allowed to transfer that data. You can't use third-party data. It's just plum fling illegal. That's that. All that stuff goes away overnight. So it is possible to do that. And and if you think about, you know, that kind of data, that has nothing to do with with personalizing my experience on the website because mm. it's all about sending the data out to somebody else who's then going to use it presumably for advertising um, or for whatever else they're going to use it for because there's a lot of um, you know dangerous things going on in terms of manipulation who sees what this gets back to the algorithms that uh, mm. control you know that you see a different message from what I see and there's been again fascinating studies about just how uh, targeted those algorithms are and how vastly different the experiences are that they give mm. uh, so again you can you could just say you know what you're not allowed to target on personal data. End of discussion. Yeah. It's just illegal. <laughs> End of discussion. It, it's funny uh, that that just uh, just to jump in here that uh, you have governments who are regulating. So you know GDPR, um, new regula- regulations happening in California. There's stuff happening in Australia and I think in the UK as well. But then you also have the tech companies regulating. So because uh, Apple's a really good example of this, because of what's happening with the IDFA and, you know, the transparency, the ATT, the sort of attention transparency opt-ins, um, they regulating so many apps, you know, there's millions of apps on the app store and Apple owns that ecosystem, the platform. And so they are self-regulating. Uh, that's not a government, uh, you know, mandated, there's no legislation to say that they need to shut that off. They're making a conscious choice for their own brand, their own company, which impacts literally thousands and thousands of advertisers and companies as well. Um, I agree with you that, you know, Facebook's line here about, well, you know, small businesses are going to have less options to track and, and target people. 
um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a straw man argument, isn't it really? Because small business will continue to advertise elsewhere. There's plenty of options on the internet. Facebook isn't the only place. Um, but there is this really interesting thing. It's like, okay, well, if, if uh, Apple self-regulating and they're impacting all the subsidiary businesses that sit and sort of depend on Apple's platform, uh, what does that say about government intervention? Is the hands for regulation in the big tech players that own the majority of um, consumer platforms? Um, what do you, what's your take on that? Right, well, I, th- I think where you're headed is exactly right. It's like, whether we trust government or not, we probably trust them more than we trust private business to make these decisions for us. Mm. So it's, it's kind of pitiful that it's up to Apple Mm. To, to put these kinds of controls in because they're controls that people are very much in favor of. I mean, really, you know, every time you do a survey about whether people want to be tracked, uh, very few will, of course, I want to be tracked. I want everybody to know exactly what I'm doing, right? <laughs> you know, said no one ever. So, yeah. you know, there's yeah. no question that, that people want that. But then it, life is not so simple and there are, you know, valid reasons for tracking and, and there's some benefits to it. So it's not that there should necessarily be blanket prohibitions, although actually I'm kind of in favor of it. But you, you mm-hmm. want a considered set of policies that are based on consideration of all the interests at play. And that's what kind mm-hmm. of what government's for. It's not really what private business is for. Again, coming back to the fact that Apple is a profit-making company. Mm-hmm. They've decided that it's in their interest to do that. Mm. They didn't decide that, oh, we're going to do this for the good of society. I don't think. If they did, they'd probably not be serving their shareholders well and be uh, you know, open to a lawsuit on those grounds. It, it's kind of what the role of government is. And we just can't, we, we can't say, ah, government's terrible. We don't trust government. Therefore, we're just going to let private enterprise do what it wants. I mean, private enterprise wants you to think that because mm. they want to be able to do what they want. But I don't think that a, a, a well-ordered society can can be quite so cavalier mm. uh, you know yeah. not everybody agrees but yeah there's a, there's a good good argument there to say that you know the tobacco industry the oil industry the airline industry have all been mostly regulated in global governments um the governments around the world sorry but uh but that's because those industries are really easy to understand <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. what, what what are the inputs what are the outputs you know flying planes is, is a very simple way to simple to understand compared to uh what facebook does with data you know, it, it's, I think it's, there's a lot of walls around how you understand how those systems work, how the algorithms actually function, you know, how do they collect data around the web? You know, I think there's a lot of people uh, that probably in governments that really don't understand or don't have the expertise to understand how a lot of these businesses operate in the first place. So, and so that's a really good argument to say, um, you know, to improve the tech skills of people who are actually governing as well. So that's a really great point, David. So what yeah, if- and, that, and that is a generational thing. And yeah. we're seeing, we're seeing it in the U S now in particular, because the, you know we have a new administration here, and, and mm. there are a lot of younger people in that administration. I'm mean, forgetting about everything else. Mm. They just they just understand the tech better. Mm. So we're seeing much more intelligent discussions now in Washington than we used than we were seeing a couple of years ago. Uh, again, a number of reasons, not just because it's new people and they're younger, but but it is part of it, and it does take some time for that expertise mm. to sort of percolate through society and then we can make more considered judgments so mm. we're again that, that, that you know people are very impatient 
<laughs> uh, in case you haven't noticed, right? And yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say this quickly, right? So you don't get bored. <laughs> but you know, you know, it takes it takes thirty years for a technology to kind of play out, mm, and I don't right. think that's really changed. And we're just not, you know, the th- internet is well close to thirty, maybe now, but you know, smart devices and stuff, smartphones, what 11, 12 years old. Mm. It's going to be a while yet, and we, it's you know, we may kill, we may destroy the planet in the meantime. So maybe mm. we don't have the luxury of waiting for thirty years, but. Uh, we, we do have yeah. to realize that it takes time. Yeah, so maybe we're uh, halfway up the hill that we, we can start seeing the peak of MarTech. Uh, I mean, you know, maybe it's a little, a little while away. As you said, there's sort of like that curve of 30 years, uh, the horizon, uh, about halfway through that, I think, with, with particularly with the complexity of technology we have now and widespread use of smartphones, things like that. We're about to see the peak. Uh, but we're still a little while away, I think. But uh, but that's a really good perspective to have as well. And I do want to finish on just one question. You have a really fascinating way of thinking about the creator uh, economy, more particularly the citizen creators, which is a bit of a subcategory, a sub-industry within MarTech, where effectively it's allowing you know marketers without technical skills um, per se to actually use uh, platforms and tech, uh, like no code as part of this as well, to create um, sort of products or uh, solutions or do advertising and marketing um, for their companies. And and you say that even though that, that industry has grown quite a bit, is that actually be, it will become more limited. And I would love your thoughts on that, in particular around privacy and sort of technology and quality of that. And and what are some of your thoughts there, your outlook on, on that sort of citizen creator aspect of MarTech? <laughs> I always think of the citizen brain surgeon, you know, I probably am not going to go to a citizen brain surgeon. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, there are things that self-service untrained people are perfectly capable of, you know, I'm perfectly capable of frying an egg in the morning. I'm not really capable of running a catering hall. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are things that take training and things that don't take training and, and mm. they're, in some ways, not even that different, right? I mean, both things, both of the things I just mentioned are cooking, but some are a little more complicated than others. Uh, so, you know, there's there's going to be a place for the, the self-service, the citizen creator stuff. It's going to be things that I use personally. It's going to be things that are inherently um, understandable. Mm. You know, if I burn the egg, I can see I burn the egg. If I have some super complex recipe, I'm going to beat this to death here but you know i might not even know what i did wrong i just know the cake didn't taste good or whatever or what the souffle fell whatever right. it is um so you know and 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 as the self-service stuff gets better and has more unfortunately ai built in that kind of supplements my own skills more things do become possible we yeah. see this you know we're, we're using um, you know Zapier and tools like that to do amazing things I have no idea how they work I just know that they work but I can see the inputs I can see the outputs I, I know I don't really know how it happens but I do know that I'm getting exactly what I want I know that I can predict and understand what the outputs are going to be if I get to the mm-hmm. point where I can't predict and understand what the outputs are going to be, then I shouldn't be using that technology. Mm. And the problem is that if I build something, and I've built fairly complicated systems for my own use, um, and somebody else tries to use it, they don't know how it works. They don't know what it's good at or not good at. And you know, I know, oh, you'd never put that in because that's simply not how the system can do. They don't know that. They just going to dump mm. it right in, and they won't even necessarily check the output. So th- there's, there's just an inherent limit. To, to how much these things can be used. And, and 
you know, the people who really think about this, they, they understand that they're they're all they'll have all kinds of rules of thumb and stuff about, you know, where where you where you whether you draw the boundary between what you should let people do without supervision and with supervision, and and you know, mostly yeah. comes down as I say to you're going to who's going to how many people are going to use it other than the creator, and how complicated can it be, and how much damage does it do if something goes wrong? If you know, if I have a little macro that I write and it messes up a spreadsheet. And I have to redo the work for you and waste a couple hours. Who cares if it causes a plane to crash? Maybe it's a little bit of a difference. Yeah. And it's, it's a, there's a risk element and then there's a capability element as well. There's a sort of training, upskilling, you know, uh, it takes, it takes years, it takes a decade to become a, to become a brain surgeon, um, you know, <laughs> and for good reasons, you know, people need to be trained in those spaces. And so, so maybe the citizen, uh, sort of that citizen creator motif is less about the, um, the sort of unsupervised building of products and technology with no code, um, but more on sort of integrating marketing and sort of technology, digital, software teams you know like ensuring that marketers can actually have and decipher and understand what uh the trained people are doing when it comes to technology and writing code and and sort of managing data um understanding what they're doing and then being able to apply it in their work you know which is still i think for a lot of companies a great divide particularly companies that don't deal in software so sort of bringing together that layer of strategy and you know the what, what the customer needs are with okay here's the solutions that we can actually go and implement together as a team and so uh, yeah, it's it's quite an interesting interesting uh, thing to watch. I think the citizen creator aspect, and I, I I do agree with you that there is a ceiling to it. There's only so much you can do, and so far you can get um, building stuff sort of without the technical skills or training. So, David, thank you for joining me on the Making Sense of Martech podcast. It has been really great to unpack this topic of peak Martech with you. Uh, so, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, well, I have my personal blog, which is, I'm embarrassed to say on Blogspot. It's like, so not cool. Um, <laughs> if you just Google David, it's a good blog. Blog, <laughs> it, it gave me the customer experience matrix. So you can find it just, as I say, just Google David yeah. blog, uh, the CDP Institute, www.cdpinstitute.org, uh, has tons and tons of stuff on, on, um, CDPs, obviously. And, and if you Go there and join. You'll get my daily newsletter, which covers a lot of the topics that we've talked about today. Um, sort of general Martech stuff with its, you know, designs three items. It's designed to be read in about five minutes. Um, so that's a good place to look. I'm on Twitter. We have a, a, um, a Slack group at the CDP Institute, which if you go to the website, uh, you'll see a sign up link for that. And that's a fun place to discuss the stuff. And obviously get some good interaction on that. So there's there's no shortage of ways to to interact. Fantastic. Well, thank you, David, for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a good conversation.